0: Kate Fagan on Lucy Harris. It's a history episode on Roundball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm JP Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, Equal Housing Lender. There's going to be another podcast at the end of the week. All takes, all the time. If you want more, I was on the radio postgame show You go to KSL.com, KSL Podcast, look up Utah Jazz Broadcast, you'll find my takes on the road trip there. But today, Kate Fagan wrote a phenomenal book, which I would recommend to any basketball fan. It's called Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture in the women's game. She did it with Simone Augustus, who you may know from being a WNBA champion and legend of the game, but today I wanted to talk about Lucy Harris, who... Let's go to 1977 and where the NBA was at. The NBA was lagging in popularity to college basketball. The college game was more important to people than the pro one. And in New Orleans, where this franchise was at in '77, they were lagging in attendance. The only ticket draw was Pete Maravich, and the pistol drew crowds, but he had injuries and the team wasn't so good around him. So they were lagging in attendance. They were in a big building, the Superdome, and they weren't filling it up. It had been three years since the franchise started, and they still hadn't made the playoffs. Pete was averaging 31 points per game, but then they bottomed out the next season. So in the 77 draft, they tried to make a splash. They drafted the first woman in the NBA... And it was Lucy Harris. There had actually been a drafting of a woman earlier, but that was voided by the league office. This is the first one that wasn't, because they knew they needed the PR to get it. But beyond that cheap trick, who is Lucy Harris? Well, she was colored television in a sea of black and white. She was something unlike the women's game had ever seen before. You know, there's this story in the Tribune archives that I was able to find talking about her success and the program that she went to success. She grew up 20 miles away from Delta State where she went. And it was her, this woman named Cornelia Black, and Debbie Brock. They referenced Brock as a 4'11 wonder child. It was a triumphant of young players that came along to Delta State in the aftermath of Title IX. And it wasn't really the aftermath because it was still very early on and not every single school was abiding. But this is post-Title IX. And Lucy Harris makes Delta State in Mississippi Yukon before Yukon. And they dethroned one dynasty that had been to all the Final Fours, all the title games. Delta State does it. And Lucy Harris... 6'3", growing up watching Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson. She played like both of them. She had explosiveness at 6'3". She was getting tippins. Pat Summit called her the first truly dominant player for the women's game. And Lucy not only did it in college for Delta State, she led the Olympic team in the first time that they were allowed in the Summer Olympic Games to a silver medal. But she does that in college at Delta State with her coach, Margaret Wade, who had played for the team previously when they actually allowed women's basketball. She was on the last team that played women's basketball in the 30s before it was disbanded by the college. And then as fate would have it, she would be coaching the first team. What were her options? What were Lucy's options being the best at her sport? There wasn't the W. There weren't orange hoodies popularizing the game. She didn't have huge options at that point. And there would be a professional leagues after that flared up and flamed out. But she returned to Delta State to be an assistant, to recruit, to live on her legacy. Because it's quite a legacy. Beyond a cheap PR stunt. So learn about it now as I talk to Kate Fagan. Five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. It's called Round Ball Roundup. Kate Fagan, she's a podcast host for Meadowlark Media. She wrote this book, Hoop Muses. It's great on all things basketball, and I guarantee you will enjoy it if you pick it up. Please enjoy Kate Fagan on Round Ball Roundup
1: when it comes time to move it's always a hassle loading everything in the truck hoping the priceless antique from your mother doesn't break and trying to juggle the kids and dog in the middle of it all is enough to drive anyone crazy but it doesn't have to be that way the friendly background checked movers at bailey's moving and storage have the expertise to move your family across town or even around the world so when it's time to move think bailey's moving and storage call today at 801-218-2640 or check them out online at baileysallied.com I found really interesting, even as somebody who knew a ton about basketball. Basketball for women, the rules of the game, so we'll just stick to that for right now. They were almost as varied as locations were playing it for certain years, right? And here I'm talking about after the invention of the game in 1891, it's immediately picked up by a, a phys ed teacher down the road in Massachusetts at, at Smith College, a woman named Senda Berenson. And I won't bore people too much with history, but because it was this game that was developed as something boys could play inside in the winter, it was by necessity supposed to be less physical. And so women started to adopt it, but they needed to make it even less physical because of the culture and the societal norms of the day. So there's there's versions of the game where women are in thirds of the court. And so there's nine players per side and there's three in each of these thirds and dribbling's not allowed just to limit physical interaction. There's versions of the game where there's as many boxes on the court as women on the court and you're not only allowed to leave that box. And then there's, you know, and then it kind of evolves and you see the version that was played up until... I I even had a teammate at Colorado who came from Oklahoma and in her middle school years was playing six on six, which was played in Iowa for a long time and you couldn't cross half court. And so that's kind of like the rules iteration of it. But I think until Title IX and players like Cheryl Miller, Lucia Harris, Ann Myers, you know, all of these names we could name, like before that I thought, okay, well, basketball kind of just didn't exist, really, because I couldn't have named you anybody. But you go back in the history, and you can find women playing everywhere since the moment the game was invented.
0: And it seems like barnstorming—you know, going town to town. The the redheads, that team, seemed so mm-hmm. interesting that they're dyeing their hair just to uh, be on yeah. the same tee, a part of their uh, costume, so to speak. That they're going <laughs> place to place and playing teams.
1: Yeah, it wasn't like this boring history that felt one dimensional or black and white. There's like these really epic tales throughout history, right? The ones you're mentioning, the all-American redheads, not all of them were natural redheads, right? They dyed their hair with henna. And then there were these uh, barnstorming clubs that came out of black Chicago and black Philadelphia. Um, and they, they had that embedded in them, the same kind of like gimmicky nature, that was part of those barnstorming clubs. I mean, even the Harlem Globetrotters, who we know today, have their origin in that same kind of foundational period. And there was a lot of women's barnstorming clubs. I mean, the All-American Redheads are like the, they're still considered, I mean, they still are the longest professional team, the longest tenured professional team, because they played from like 1936 up until and through the 70s before they disbanded. And so, I mean, there's so many other little kind of nuggets and stories throughout history, even going back to the early 1900s, where there's these really cool stories that are really dynamic of like what women did to try to play this game.
0: Well, and it seems star-crossed that Margaret Wade, the coach over at Delta mm-hmm. State, coaches Lucy Harris, who becomes the most dominant force in the women's basketball game because Margaret Wade had to have her jerseys burned because her her college wouldn't wouldn't allow women's basketball to play. It seemed very star crossed that they came into each other's lives.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's such a cool story about Delta State, Lucy Harris, Margaret Wade, and 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 Margaret Wade. Some you know college sports fans will know is the namesake of the Wade Trophy, which in women's college basketball is given to the best player each year and that the namesake of that is Margaret Wade who coached Delta State who coached Lucy Harris and who she herself was playing at Delta State decades prior to coaching Lucy Harris and was on the team and they were they were good and then just kind of out of nowhere the administration deemed it unladylike and it was after I think in in her third season they decided basketball would be no more and the women on that team had no recourse. They were just angry, but there was nothing they could do. So as you mentioned, they burned their jerseys just as a kind of, I don't know, like emotional catharsis for what had happened. And then, you know, life coming full circle when Delta State relaunches its program a couple decades later, uh, they call on Margaret Wade to come and, and be the head coach of their, the first official kind of head coach of, of this new rebooted program. And she got pretty lucky with who who stepped onto campus. <laughs>
0: How did you go about trying to find information about Lucy Harris and what her game was at the time?
1: Well, luckily, she, I mean, luckily, right around the time I was working on the book, New York Times came out with their documentary on her, which would go on to win like the best Oscar, best short documentary Oscar. And also Pat Summit, you know, an icon of the game, had coached Lucy Harris in the inaugural Uh, The women's basketball's inaugural introduction to the olympic games in 1976 so then you have pat summit who's like written about her in her books in the 90s as well as just the 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 coverage of delta state during their run like the pre-ncaa their their title runs like it was a bit of an anomaly and and lucy harris the style of her play was so dynamic and different than anything anyone had seen that there was actually a lot of coverage and reporters who are kind of chiming in on it during the era and great footage of delta state as well
0: that's what i noticed watching that oscar short is that this looks like hd it looks like some better than some college soccer streams <laughs> that i see on espn plus it looked amazing to watch lucy I harris
1: i don't know if they had to restore it
0: yeah she yeah. looked dominant out there yeah. because she was hanging around the the rim really good
1: yeah and, and that was and you, you hear anybody talk about her game who was a part of it intimately and that's you know there there wasn't a player like her up until that point because this is even like you know this is pre Cheryl Miller and then you've got her origin story which is like so familiar to any of us who grew up post title 9 which is you know she was she's from Mississippi and she's like playing with her brothers growing up in like the hoop in their backyard and so she kind of develops this this this, this ability to pass as well. And so it's just a style of game that we hadn't really seen to that point in, in women's basketball, which, you know, and she, and she was surrounded by like a a number of like really good little guards. And so it was just this dynamic little team that kind of came out of nowhere and really could only exist in They're very much representative of their time as well.
0: What were her options post uh, college at that time?
1: I mean, I think she would say, and you can kind of hear her say it in that documentary, is like, I guess there were technically options, but not financially rewarding options. I mean, the the WBL, the Women's Basketball Professional League, which ran for about three seasons in 1978 to about 1981. I mean, the Houston Angels made her their number one pick, but the salaries were so low, she could make more money in her field outside of basketball. And so you only see her play. And of course she gets drafted by your squad. But even, even if you hear what she was saying at the time that that happened, when, when people reached her about it, I mean, she never thought it was something where she was going to end up on the basketball court with the, the new Orleans jazz or the Utah jazz. But so the options were limited. If she was like desperate to play basketball, there were a couple places she could have, but she would have had to be sacrificing some financial wellness to continue playing the game.
0: When did overseas become an option for players?
1: It, well, so, like, the overseas game, you know, like, in places like Italy and um, Spain, it's called, like, La Liga Feminine. I'm probably butchering the you know pronunciation on that, but, like, that's that started in the late 50s, and you see some women go overseas in Lucy Harris's day, but it's really sort of like the mid-80s. Cynthia Cooper, who had been playing at the University of Southern California, goes over and plays in Parma. And a couple other places that like there's actual legit money to be made in the overseas game and and that's always balanced against especially if lucy harris had gone overseas when after she graduated like the the ramifications of being isolated overseas as an american which is very different from the way international players or american players abroad ha- have to deal with today like it was just such a different you know like isolation travel it's not a lot of communication. So I don't really think that playing overseas was like the best option when she was graduating.
0: Now let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite fund and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. later on, Ann Myers having that that tryout with the Pacers. What was the interaction with women and and the NBA?
1: Well, it's like, it's it's hard for us who follow the the NBA now to understand where the NBA was in its growth at that time. I mean, anybody who's watched the um, Adam McKay show on HBO about the Showtime Lakers realizes that the NBA, like when the Jazz drafted Lucia Harris, or when the Pacers in, in 1979 bring in Ann Myers. The NBA is not this like financial powerhouse with like the foundation. I mean, it was still a league that was trying to find its way and find its commercial value in America. So, and there was still these kind of PR moments where, you know, even in that same draft as Lucia Harris, um, Caitlin Jenner, then Bruce Jenner is, is drafted right after Lucia Harris, even though he hasn't played basketball since high school. And so the NBA was still in this time period of like, uh, marketing and PR being paramount necessarily to like the integrity of what we see now, like a general manager's war room. And so there was a little bit more, there was a little bit more interaction in terms of like women who had, who had come onto the stage and, you know, anointed themselves Queens of the game. There'd still be more interaction in terms of actually giving them a a place to play in like a summer league or something, which is, very different than you might see today because of the commercial powerhouse that the NBA is.
0: When did things get better for uh, the game so that there were options for women after college?
1: I mean, some could argue that like, well, I mean, obviously title IX, 1972, even though Lucia Harris and Ann Myers, some of the people we're talking about right now are technically post title nine you know graduating in 78 ish um title nine took a long time to actually get its footing i mean for a while there was you know the NCA had funded like a war chest to try to, to try to reverse title nine so you have this like period of time between 1972 to like 1980 where no one's really willing to admit that title nine is a thing that you, like there's stories of the Stanford Cardinal women's basketball program in these years of like 1976. They're they're not playing in Maples Pavilion, they're playing in a gym with no ability to have an audience, like they have no coach, no trainers, and they have to go to the athletic director's office like once a week, maybe not that frequently, and sort of like do a sit-in to say to him, like, Title IX exists and you owe us, you know, by law, these amenities. And they had to fight for that stuff. And and that was even after it was codified into law. So You've, so you've got a long period of time between Title IX actually passing and then you start to see the effects of Title IX, which you don't really start to see until like the mid to late 80s. And that kind of snowballs into the NBA deciding that they want to own basketball year round. And then the idea with David Stern starts to brew ahead of the Atlanta Olympics in, 80, in 1996 that we wanna, we want to fill our arenas year round and so we're going to own the women's game as well. And so I, that's really, I would say the '90s is when you start to see opportunities exist, whether it's to go overseas and maybe make six figures if you're one of the best players, and then the foundation of the the WNBA. But even so, I mean, I would I would almost argue that it's only been in the last five years, last ten years that like options for women are like many when they're when they're done playing the college game.
0: How has NIL helped out?
1: Oh, man. I mean, if somebody can explain NIL to me and how it's going like, to affect the game going forward. I mean, right now, I don't know that I would even be able to say how if it's helping. There's a lot of questions about like how athletes now have, especially female athletes, have to sell themselves if they want to get into that NIL market. Um, and so you, it's tough to see the long term ramification of what NIL will mean because football is going to lead the way. And then you're like, well, what happens if football breaks off and how does that impact the you know, women's sports in terms of the NCAA model? So I mean NIL has certainly offered a select few female athletes to cash in earlier in their career. I think it it could lead to like little individual stories that I think help, like Caitlin Clark staying at Iowa for five years instead of possibly three you know, like she, she could leave, she could have left early if NIL wasn't a thing. And so I think that there's like that kind of trickle down effect where the best players have the financial incentive to, to stay in the game at the college level as long as they want. And so to me, that's kind of like the short term effect of it.
0: Well, I even found it interesting that the NCAA didn't take on women's basketball at the very beginning. It was a, a different organization on top of of what the colleges were competing at.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was one of the, as somebody, I mean, I played it in college and I didn't understand the origin of the NCAA's what I call kind of like takeover of women's sport. It's like, you see like two years ago, it goes viral. You see the disparity between the NCAA tournaments between the women and the men, you know, the women, you don't know, have like eight pound weights and a yoga mat and the men have like a sprawling weight room and everyone's like, Oh, like, this is this is crazy. How did this happen? And then it's like, well, if you go back in history, <laughs> you know, uh, to a time in 1981 at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, where the NCA has decided that after trying to kill women's sports and kill Title IX, they realize, mm, you know, what we need to do is we need to govern it so that we can limit equality. We don't need to make 50-50, as Title IX says. Like, If we govern women's sports and we have women's sports underneath an almost predominantly male athletic director, then we can sort of fudge the numbers. And that's what you've seen throughout history. Like The NCAA, as I like to say, is like, they're not an advocate for women's sports. This is like the fox guarding the henhouse. At every turn, trying to give women's sports as little as they can get away with. So that's how you end up whatever it is, 40 years later, seeing these NCAA tournament disparities, anybody who's paying attention is like, don't be surprised by that. Like, that is essentially a representation of what the NCAA has always been about when it comes to female athletes.
0: It's a feature, not a bug, the way that... As they, they say. They, yes. they treat it, almost. <laughs>
1: um, I think is kind of a culmination of a lot of factors. I had spent my career like ESPN and other places. And part of what I always did was try to bring topics about female athletes, women's sports, learn about the culture and the infrastructure and what limited coverage. And it felt like one of the key things that I landed on over the years was the storytelling both in the present and then also this thing about mythologizing the history of our games, something we do consistently on the men's side you know you have like lineage and you have mythology and you have lore and you have all all these ways we tell stories after the games have happened like in documentaries and scripted series and so it was kind of this culmination of this idea of that specifically in women's basketball there was a lot of history that nobody knew and there's like a lineage to the game but most people don't understand that there is in the same way that they understand it on the men's side and so I wanted to do something joyful and vibrant that would introduce that lineage to you know kids all the way up through adults.
0: How did one of the legends of the game, Simone Augustus, get uh, involved with this project?
1: Well, I once I was starting to think about pitching the idea, um, you know, I had played hoops and I played in college and I played pro a little bit, but I certainly was not at the level <laughs> that Simone Augustus no. was at. Few people have been. Um, and I wanted to bring like that added layer of insider to the book, and you know, because that's kind of, I mean, that's the subhead of the book is like an insider's guide. And so, um, and there was nobody like Simone who both had played at that highest level and was also really enmeshed in the culture of the game. I mean, Simone's just like a sneakerhead, and she understands the fashion of the game, and so, and I wanted all of that energy injected into the book.
0: How influential were you on the uh, top five lists in the the top 25 um, people uh, concerning the women's game?
1: Well, let's see. I mean, I basically, with some help from Simone, yeah, I I tried to pick the top five international players of all time. And like the little list we did, um, but but the top 25 WNBA players, that's straight from the WNBA's own list that they, you know, had people vote on. So... I just had had an illustrator illustrate those. I didn't have to like be the selector of them, thank God. We did do some other things where, with Simone's help, tried to, to create certain sort of fun, interactive elements to the book.
0: I'm glad Emma Mieseman made the list for Best Internationals because mm-hmm. she's my favorite women's basketball player. I love a yeah. good pick-and-pop <laughs> player. 2019 Finals MVP, loved watching it. How did the illustrations come about? Cause I, I love the look of the book looks great. Yes.
1: So that's, those are all, well, mostly Sophia Chang. Um, and then there's some comic book art by Milana Bod and those um, sort of like illustration of the headshots of the top 25 players in WNBA history. It was done by Arizona O'Neill, but mostly the book is Sophia Chang. And she was like our number one pick to illustrate this book because if you follow her, like on Instagram, even before, you know she's been enmeshed in the culture for years and has done a ton of really dynamic work for like Topps trading cards and like Grantland back in the day when Grantland was the thing. The website by Bill Simmons and she'd done like illustrations for those. So she just kind of knew the sports world and then also knew the women's sports world. So you didn't have to. You know i didn't have to like explain simple things to her if you'd had an illustrator who had no concept of sports at all and she's just i mean she's just brought the whole vision to life with what she did
0: why present it the way that you did with a flash forward and then a flashback for everything
1: well when we were getting to the end of the book i realized like all i was doing was putting things in chronological order you know, it was like I, you know, it starts with Naismith, and then you have senda Berenson. and I was kind of taking you through history, which was like a fine device, but it didn't feel creative or dynamic enough for what we were trying to do in the book. And we'd we'd had this idea when we first pitched the book to have like a, a little girl walk across the bottom of the page, like every page mm-hmm. she'd be like a little bit older, a little bit older, and then by the end she'd be like, you know, a WNBA star, and like her jersey would change throughout. And and so we kind of got toward the end of the book and, you know, Sophia had done was so strapped in doing all the illustrations that I wasn't going to ask her to do like 160 little tiny illustrations along the bottom of the page. So we just reframed it. And I was like, what if we sort of imagine a future for women's basketball, like the 75th anniversary of the W? And then we have a kind of device where this future star doesn't know who some iconic player of today is. And then that leads us, you know, on this. Um, time-bending journey of, of taking her back and showing her this history because you'll see, you know, there's comic strips throughout where this future star is, like, observing this history as it happens, and then she's returned to the future with, like, this more edified knowledge of of the game and and this 75th anniversary where she sees a lot of these stars that she learned about and I just felt like given what we wanted to do with the book, I couldn't just leave it as like chronological and that be it. Like I needed a better engine. And so that was the one we developed to put, like put the framework on the book.
0: Well, I, fe- I felt like the future WNBA star. It was good to learn about the history and figure out. I mean, one of the comic strips was about Lucy Harris, and she didn't realize that there was a Oscar-winning documentary on her. Yeah. I was I was right there with her, and I enjoyed yeah, uh, it. Right. <laughs> sitting along with her as well. Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. It is out now wherever you get books. And the author is Kate Fagan. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.